Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes. Crazy weather we've been having here in the United States, at least where I live. One day it was 76 degrees at my house, and less than 36 hours later it was 26. We've got torrential rains in parts of the southeast, and it's snowing in Los Angeles. Man, just a weird couple of weeks weather-wise around here. I hope the weather's been nicer wherever you are, listener, or at least more consistent for this time of year. We've made it into March, and spring is just around the corner. And, in a lot of places, of course, daylight savings time. Ugh. I can't wait to lose that hour of sleep come mid-March. But we'll cross that bridge when we get to it, listener. Because now it's time to talk about today's book, Clone Wars Gambit Siege by Karen Miller. Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker are on a secret mission and trapped on the Outer Rim world of Lanteeb. Can they find a way to destroy Count Dooku's newest biological weapon and escape back to the Republic? We'll find out in just a few minutes. But first, it's listener question time. I have two emails today. The first comes from Jan. Jan says, I grew up on Legends books, and I collect them now. Star Wars means so much to me, even the parts that aren't as appealing. I love your ability to give your opinions without ever being rude to the writers or people who might feel differently. Well, thank you very much for the kind words, Jan. It's really very nice. I always say Star Wars is for everyone. There are some things you're going to like and others, not so much. But it's such an amazing universe. I would never want to discourage anyone from their enjoyment of it. I have a 12-year-old niece and a 9-year-old nephew who like some parts of Star Wars, but they're definitely not in the weeds like their old Uncle Aaron. I'm not as interested in some of the Star Wars stuff that they seem to like, but who cares? I love trying to relate with their interests. Secretly, I'm trying to turn them into a big old Star Wars nerd like me. Jan continues, My question is this. What do you think would have happened if Darth Maul had killed both Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi? Would the Naboo still succeed in retaking their planet since Anakin blows up the droid command ship? Would the Jedi Council take Anakin on still, or would they abandon him? Would Palpatine have snatched him up? We always hear about the duel of the fates, what if Qui-Gon had lived? I think it's interesting to wonder about this third option. Great questions, Jan. Let me answer the parts that I think are the easiest first. Yes, I think the Naboo would still have broken the Trade Federation's siege. When Anakin blows up the droid command ship, shutting down all the droids on the surface, that effectively ends the battle. Padme and the Naboo guards would still have taken back the palace from the Nemoidians. Everything in those two areas stays the same, I think. Although, I do wonder if Maul would have simply escaped Naboo and returned to Sidious, or if Sidious would have ordered Maul to try and kill Padme before he fled. The other two parts of your question are more difficult to speculate about. 
In the movie, the Jedi agree to let Obi-Wan train Anakin. In my opinion, part of their reasoning is because they know Obi-Wan, and they know his loyalty to Qui-Gon. They know that Obi-Wan was going to try and train Anakin regardless of what the Council thought. So, it was safest to bring Anakin into the Jedi Order, at least. But, what if Maul had also killed Obi-Wan? That's a conundrum. I could definitely see different factions forming between the council members. I think you would have had some like Yoda and Mace Windu and Ki-Adi Mundi who would have been against the idea of training Anakin because of his age, because of his attachment to his mother, and maybe they would have been able to sway any vote. But remember, the council did vote to allow Anakin to be trained. So, that means there had to be enough council members to outvote those three. Ultimately, I do think the Jedi would still take Anakin in. I mean, they couldn't really send him back to Tatooine, back into slavery with his mother. And they couldn't really just cast him out into the street, especially considering how much force potential he had. Now, as far as Palpatine goes, I don't think he would have taken Anakin in, even if he had the opportunity. Consider this. Palpatine took in Maul and raised him in the dark side to use him as a weapon against the Jedi. But that's all Maul was, a weapon. Eventually, the Jedi were going to band together, track him down, and defeat him. He was expendable. Palpatine needed the Jedi to raise Anakin. He needed Anakin to become disillusioned with the council so that Anakin would eventually turn on them and take down the order from within. It's really the only way Palpatine's plan works, in my opinion. Still, it would be interesting to think about how Anakin would have turned out if Palpatine had taken him in as a child. Thank you very much for the email, Jan. Today's second message comes from listener Clark. Clark says, I really enjoy monster stories like Godzilla vs. Kong, Tomorrow War, and Pacific Rim. My questions are, are there giant monsters or kaiju in Star Wars Legends? If Godzilla was in Star Wars, how do you think he would fit into the lore? And what side would he be on? Light, dark, or neutral, like the Bendu? Thank you for the amazing podcast and keep up the great work. Thank you for the email, Clark. Yes, there are some kaiju-like monsters in Legends. In fact, there's a lot. Now, some that come to mind are the Gorog from the Force Unleashed 2 video game. It's a monster with two arms, two legs, and four tusks coming out of its jaws. The Gorog is sometimes described as being the size of four rancors. Then there are Leviathans, great Sith-engineered beasts, from the distant past, some that fly and terrorize people, some can swim. Depending on the age and type, a Sith Leviathan could be anywhere from 30 meters to over 100 meters in length. And then you've got the Space Grazers in the Old Republic era. Now these were massive beasts that roamed space, devouring ships. Some of the pictures in the Old Republic comics make it seem like 
the grazers were kilometers long. So there are a lot of kaiju-like monsters in Star Wars. Now, Clark, you ask about what if Godzilla was in Star Wars. Well, the Zillow Beast in the Clone Wars animated show is an homage to Godzilla. So I don't think we have to speculate how it would fit into the lore. It's already there. Now, if you don't know what the Zillow Beast is, go check out the Clone Wars Season 2 episodes 18 and 19 called The Zillow Beast and The Zillow Beast Strikes Back. And now the storyline has returned in the most recent episode of The Bad Batch. That's Season 2, Episode 11, Metamorphosis. It'll be interesting to see how the Zillow Beast continues with the way that episode ended. Thank you very much for the email, Clark. Now, listener, if you want to be really cool like Jan and Clark, feel free to contact the show. Send me an email at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send me a tweet at legendslounge1. And if you'd like to get your voice on the show, just record a short message and email it in. All I ask is that you help me out by recording it in MP3 or MP4 audio format. Now it's time for today's book, Clone Wars Gambit Siege by Karen Miller. Grab yourself a drink. Let's head in to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Today's plot summary is going to be a bit shorter because, honestly, there's not much plot in this book. It's a set piece, really. You could describe this story as three acts that take place over the entire duology of books. The first two acts are in the previous book, Clone Wars Gambit Stealth, while this book, Clone Wars Gambit Siege, is the final act. The story begins with Anakin and Obi-Wan on the run, fleeing Lantib's capital city, after telling the scientist who had reluctantly developed the Separatist's new bioweapon that they'll be back to rescue her. The two Jedi crash their stolen landspeeder outside the mining village of Torbell, a harsh, dirty wilderness town where life revolves around mining and refining Damotite. They enter the town still pretending to be Lantiban farmers who have just arrived on the planet and are trying to return to their village way up north. Anakin and Obi-Wan are taken in by a schoolteacher, Teba Jacqueline, who's clearly suspicious of them. But Jacqueline notifies the head miner, Teeb Rickard, when the two agree to work the mine until they get back on their feet. Obi-Wan heads down into the mines, while Anakin puts his mechanical skills to good use. He helps to maintain the equipment at the refinery and the shield generators surrounding the village. Soon, however, the two are found out when a dangerous ion storm hits the village. Rickard tells them if the ionization gets through the shield, it'll fry everyone. Anakin and Obi-Wan join many of the townsfolk, trying to keep the 12 shield generators from overheating. But the storm is too strong. One of the generators malfunctions, weakening the shield. Rickard says if another one breaks, the shield will fall. Soon, a second one starts to overheat and shut down. The storm starts to blow through the town, 
just as Anakin arrives at the faulty generator. Out of time and out of choices, Anakin raises his hands and uses the Force to push back the storm. The townsfolk watch in awe as Anakin holds the storm at bay, saving them from the deadly, saving them from the deadly radiate, saving them from the deadly radiation. But now things are awkward. Obi Wan admits to Rickard and Jacqueline that they're Jedi who were sent to Lanteeb to stop the Separatists, but now they're on the run. He and Anakin don't mention the bioweapon, however, hoping to protect the townsfolk from any guilt they may feel from mining the Damotite. With their identities revealed, the Jedi ask to use the town's radio to call for help. On Coruscant, Yoda and Senator Bail Organa discuss what to do and they decide to finally inform the Chancellor about Obi-Wan and Anakin's secret mission. The news angers Palpatine, who admonishes the two for organizing a covert mission behind his back. But that's not the only reason that the secret Sith Lord is upset. Because now he knows the Jedi have found out about the bioweapon. And, perhaps more importantly, young Skywalker is in danger behind Separatist lines. Palpatine tells Yoda and Bale to keep him informed of the situation and says if the two can come up with a rescue plan to make sure and let him know. Back in Torbell, Obi-Wan tries to help in the town clinic, using his rudimentary Jedi healing powers to help the townspeople that were hurt when the shields first shut down. Obi-Wan works himself to exhaustion, but the villagers soon hold a meeting over what to do with them. Jacqueline wants to turn the Jedi over to the Separatists. Rickard says they're under the protection of the townsfolk, and Obi-Wan is helping to heal those that were sick and injured. After an intense debate, Rickard persuades the villagers to vote to allow the Jedi to stay for one more week, hopefully long enough for the Republic forces to get to Lamteeb. In the capital city, General Locke Durd is panicking. He's kept the presence of the Jedi on Lanteeb a secret from Count Dooku. Plus, Dooku is pressuring the general to get the bioweapon ready for use. Durd continues to threaten Dr. Bantina Fernan to finish the weapon as quickly as possible. The Jedi threatens to kill Dr. Fernan's friends and family if she doesn't show results soon. But little does the doctor know, General Durd is bluffing. After Durd had one of the doctor's closest friends killed, the Jedi rescued the others and took them into protective custody. The general's pressure works. Dr. Fernand finalizes the formula and tells General Durd it's ready for testing. But the general has another idea. Not some small-scale test. One that will allow him to show off for Count Dooku. Durd has a small canister of the bioweapon prepared and sets it off in the capital on Chandrilla. The results are devastating. 10,000 beings in the area around a public park are infected. They quickly fall to the ground, screaming in pain. Within minutes, there's nothing left. Their bodies liquefied. It's a horrifying demonstration. 
and the images are shown throughout the galaxy on the holonet. Following the attack, Chancellor Palpatine orders Yoda and Bail to organize an attack fleet. Unfortunately, the Republic's forces are spread thin. Yoda is able to organize a small strike force of three Republic cruisers. Yoda recalls Mace Windu back from Bothawi to lead the strike force. Yoda also orders Ahsoka Tano to accompany Mace, and he has a special assignment for Master Taria Damson. Yoda orders the former Jedi Shadow to infiltrate Lanteeb and destroy the bioweapon in General Durd's lab. Taria says she'll then rescue Obi-Wan and Anakin. Yoda agrees, but he's adamant. Taria's primary mission is to destroy the weapon. Back on Lanteeb, the Separatists discover Anakin's hollow message to Coruscant and trace it back to Torbell. Count Dooku orders General Durd to capture the Jedi, alive. So Durd orders his battle droids to march on the village. Meanwhile, Anakin and Obi-Wan begin the defense. They start training 30 of the villagers into a militia, while Rickard heads up a team to fix the broken shield generators, and they get them working only hours before the first droid troops arrive. The droids surround the village, firing on the shield until they realize it's no use. They stop firing and surround it, waiting for the generators to fail. The Republic Strike Force arrives to find a fleet led by General Grievous in orbit above the planet. The Republic is severely outgunned. There's little chance they can break the orbital defense. Mace contacts the Jedi Temple to request additional ships, but Yoda tells him there aren't any. However, Bale has an idea. He and Senator Padme Amidala contact several shipping companies that operate within Republic space. They ask to use their security ships to help Atlantib. The companies agree, but on one condition. They'll only risk their ships once an antidote to the bioweapon is made available. Unfortunately, the Republic scientists haven't been able to produce an antidote. They're missing one important chemical chain to counteract the Damotite poisoning. Luckily, that chemical chain is available in Torbell. Obi-Wan just has to figure out a way to get the information to Coruscant. Taria uses a Separatist freighter to run the blockade and lands on Lanteeb. The Jedi Shadow sneaks into General Durd's compound and finds Dr. Fernan in the lab. Dr. Fernan apologizes for creating the bioweapon, but says she had no choice. The General could have killed her mother and the rest of her family at any time. But Taria tells the doctor she doesn't have to worry anymore. Her loved ones are safe. Taria offers Dr. Fernan her comlink to speak with her mother, confirming Taria's information. Dr. Fernan breaks down after speaking with her mother. If she would have known, she would have stood up to General Durd, even if it meant her death. Taria says she's going to blow the compound showing Dr. Fernand the explosives that she plans to set. Hopefully, Taria says, she can take out General Durd in the blast. That won't happen, says the doctor. Durd's not here anymore. He left for the spaceport over an hour ago. It's unfortunate, but still, Taria says she has to blow the lab. Quietly, 
Dr. Fernand asks Taria to give her the explosives. She tells the Jedi that she needs to go save Obi-Wan and Anakin in Torbell. Dr. Fernand says she'll blow the lab. It's the only way she can pay restitution for inventing the bioweapon. Taria agrees. She takes a land speeder and heads off to Torbell as Dr. Fernand lights off the explosives, destroying the lab and her research on the bioweapon. In Torbell, Obi-Wan discovers that the medicine the villagers have been using for decades to stem off the effects of damotite poisoning contains the chemical chain that the Republic scientists have been looking for. He broadcasts the information to Coruscant, allowing the Republic scientists to manufacture an antidote to General Durd's bioweapon. With the antidote in hand, Bale and Padme's civilian fleet heads off to Lantib to reinforce Republic forces. The story ends after Taria arrives in Torbell. She fights through a weakness in the droid line and joins up with Obi-Wan and Anakin to lead the defense of the village. The Republic and civilian fleet breaks the Separatist blockade, forcing General Grievous to flee. Ahsoka and Captain Rex lead the clone ground forces down to Torbell. They destroy the droid army and save the village. Time for a break. When we return, I'll talk more about Clone Wars Gambit Siege. I'm Aaron Motes. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Thank you for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, where we celebrate the books from Star Wars Legends. But let me take a moment and recommend a book from Star Wars canon. Aftermath is the beginning of the story following the Battle of Endor. The Empire's in disarray. Now its remaining leaders meet on a distant world to plan a counterattack. How will the Rebellion handle the lingering Imperial threat while trying to start a new Republic? That's Aftermath by Chuck Wendig the first book in the Aftermath Trilogy. Welcome back to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes, and today I'm talking about Clone Wars Gambit Siege by Karen Miller. When you go online and look up different reviews for this story, In general, they're not as high as the reviews for the first part, Stealth. However, I disagree with some of those opinions. I understand what they're saying. Not as much happens in this book. In the first story, there's more action, more subterfuge. You have a lot of different set pieces. You have a lot of different settings. There's not as much in this story. It's mostly told within the village of Torbell, and it's mostly Obi-Wan and Anakin dealing with their situation, dealing with each other, and then dealing with the repercussions of outing themselves as Jedi to the townspeople. If you're a fan of the philosophical discussions between Obi-Wan and Anakin in the prequel films and the Clone Wars animated show, I think you'll like this book. 
because there are a lot of them. Obi-Wan is continually frustrated at Anakin's emotional outbursts. He's frustrated with Anakin promising things that most likely he will not be able to back up. Anakin, on the other hand, butts up against Obi-Wan's stubbornness, against his stodginess. In some cases, the lack of emotion borders on apathy. But we know Obi-Wan Kenobi is not apathetic. From Anakin's point of view, though, he seems so at times. There's an exchange in the story where Anakin wants to reveal their real identities to the villagers and explain to them why the Jedi are there, to explain to them that the Damotite that they're mining is being used to build a weapon to use against the Republic. And Anakin says that if they reveal themselves, they can then promise the villagers that they'll be protected by the Jedi. Obi-Wan is against this, mainly for the reason that they don't know if Anakin can back up that promise. They're stuck behind enemy lines. They're on a secret mission. As far as they know, there may not be any Republic forces coming to rescue them. How are two Jedi, stuck way behind enemy lines, supposed to protect an entire village from General Durd's separatist troops there on Lantib and any other forces that Count Dooku and General Grievous can find and send to the planet. Obi-Wan continues this inner dialogue that he's envious at times of the passion that Anakin feels, the desire to try to help people. But it all stems from the time that Anakin was able to spend with his mother. And Obi-Wan laments that. Anakin is like Qui-Gon. Obi-Wan says Qui-Gon was always picking up strays. And that's how Anakin is acting. Anakin wants to protect these people. He wants to give them hope. But Obi-Wan knows that that hope isn't really something that Anakin can offer. Because what happens if he and Anakin are forced to flee the village? The Separatists are going to wipe Torbell off the map. It's an interesting philosophical debate that the two continue to have. Which is better for the villagers in Torbell? hope that something better is going to come along or keeping them in the dark rather than giving them false hope and eventually letting them down. Now, that's not all that's in this book. One of the things I find interesting about this story is 
You can tell what information Karen Miller had when she was writing these two books. They're published in 2010, which means she would have been writing them in 2008 and 2009. She references the injuries that Anakin sustained when the cruiser that Anakin, Ahsoka, and Aaliyah Sakura are on crash on the planet Meriden. So she knows the events of Season 1 of The Clone Wars. However, she doesn't know what happens in Season 2 because she writes that Obi-Wan and Master Taria Damson had a brief romance back when they were both Padawans or young Jedi Knights, obviously not knowing about Duchess Satine. However, Taria serves a similar purpose to what Duchess Satine did in her first appearances on the show. It shows Anakin that his former master isn't just this stodgy, old, buttoned-up Jedi who does everything by the rules. That he has a past. That he is capable of having the same emotions that Anakin does. Of course, in the television show, Anakin teases Obi-Wan about this. He takes the situation and makes it playful. In this book... Anakin gets really angry because Obi-Wan knows that stemming from the events that we see in Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, that Anakin has feelings for Padme Amidala. Now, in this story, Obi-Wan does not know that Anakin and Padme married at the end of Attack of the Clones. He believes that any harboring feelings they had, they're just not acting upon them. He knows that Anakin still has them, but Obi-Wan keeps telling Anakin he can't do anything about them. Well, after Anakin discovers that Obi-Wan and Taria Damson had a brief romance when they were younger, Anakin gets angry, accusing Obi-Wan of hypocrisy. Obi-Wan admits to that on some level, but he says the big difference is, Anakin, both Taria and I realized if we maintained a relationship, we could not be effective Jedi Knights. It's okay, Anakin, to have these feelings. But if you want to be a Jedi and help the galaxy, you can't have romantic attachments. Now, is Obi-Wan correct in this assessment? We could debate that forever. But that's what Obi-Wan is trying to teach Anakin in this story. That's what Obi-Wan constantly is trying to teach Anakin. And as we know, Anakin just doesn't listen. So, this story doesn't really have as much action or adventure as some of the other stories and legends. This one, as I said before, is kind of like a one-act play. 
it's a little more than one act because, you know, they're not just in the one setting the entire time. We do flash back to Coruscant for some conversations between Yoda and Bale and Palpatine. But for all intents and purposes, the main crux of this story is the philosophical debate between Obi-Wan and Anakin over what Anakin needs to do to become the chosen one that Qui-Gon Jinn envisioned that Anakin would become. I think it's an interesting story. It's a little slower than some of the other Legends books that you get, but it really does make you think. Now, before I go, I received a couple favorite Star Wars character groupings, all of them from listener Waylon. Waylon sent in four groupings. He's got his road trip buddies, the driver, Grease Dritus, navigator, Seer Junda, radio person, BD1, Marin is on snacks, activities by Karth Onassi, and Bix Colleen is the mechanic. His bounty hunter team, Leader is Django Fett with Boba Fett, Black Crescenton, Fennec Shand, and the droid T3M4 as the team. And the person that hired them is Pre Vizsla. His Special Forces ground team is led by Captain Rex and includes the Bad Batch, members of the 501st, and the 212th. His final grouping comes from what I spoke about back around Valentine's Day the people he wants to see date in Star Wars. He's got Lando Calrissian and Garza Fwip, the Mandalorian, Din Djarin and Cara Dune, Cal Kestis and the Night Sister, Marin, Carthonassi and Mission Val, and Sid and Hunter from the Bad Batch cartoon. There's a great list, Waylon. It seems like you're a big video game fan. I don't get a lot of people including many video game characters, I get some, but not many, so that's nice to see. Well, time to wrap up, listener. If you have a question or comment for the show, or if you want to send in your favorite Star Wars character groupings, you can email me at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send a tweet at legendslounge1. Or if you want to send in an audio message, feel free to email it in. But please... Record it in MP3 or MP4 audio format. Coming up on the next episode, I'll be staying in the prequel era. It's Labyrinth of Evil by James Luceno. That should be pretty cool. Join me again on March 17th. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. I'm Aaron Motes. May the Force be with you. And remember, there's always a bit of truth in Legends. <laughs>